Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he scores! Oh, what a great pass! This week, we're pleased to be joined by our first European Cup winner, uh, Liverpool legend David Fairclough. David, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you guys. Yes, thank you, David. It's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on, so thank you for joining us. Um, so w- what we've done is we've picked out a magazine for yourself from 1976. It's a shoot magazine and it's from the 24th of January 1976. So as we do, we'll start from the front cover and it's dominated with a photo of Northern Ireland player manager Dave Clements and he's surrounded by shirts from international opponents. Now Dave is sitting on some grass and has a Northern Ireland shirt in his hands but spread around him are shirts from some of the nations he has faced. So going clockwise from the right-hand side, we have an England top, and it's it's a yellow one, so I'm thinking that's probably a goalkeeper shirt, although England did have a yellow chain strip back then as well, but that was made by Umbro. Uh, this one is... Uh, the yellow one, the change one, was made by um, Admiral, sorry, and this one is by Umbro, so I'm thinking that's probably a goalkeeper shirt. Yeah, quite quite likely. Looks, uh, looks that way. I think that time... I can't remember. I can't remember seeing England playing yellow at. Uh, well, I don't remember that, but hmm. yeah, yeah. There's there's only one. I think it's Jerry Francis. I've, I've seen in it, and there's only one photograph, and it's one of these AirTex ones, as well. So that's all. I don't think that's what this one is. So the the next kit up is uh, light blue, and it's a Cyprus. So that's quite an unusual one there. Um, next up from that is a Scotland kit. It's a dark blue with a white wing collar and cuffs. Uh, next one is Turkey. I think that one's pretty obviously Turkey. It's a white kit and it's a thick red hoop around the chest and there's a white crescent moon and star inside this as well. And next one up is Bulgaria and it's an all red strip with a large round badge in the middle of the shirt. That one was, I wasn't too sure about that one so I had to do a bit of digging to work out what that one was but that's Bulgaria next one up is anybody know what this one is? Portugal isn't it? Portugal yeah, yeah. so this is a, a white Portuguese shirt with a red and green round collar and that's really I really like that collar and lastly is an all white Soviet Union kit with a red CCP across the chest the interesting thing about all these shirts there is a little bit of I don't know, romance mystique about about them, but what was curious in those da- in those days was what they were all made out of, hmm. and um, generally, I mean, some of them, particularly you know, Russian shirts and and uh, a number of others were Eastern Eastern European ones yeah. were were made out of really poor poor stuff, um, <laughs> and when when you showed people down the years. Um, 
memories, shirts and things like that. Can't, people can't believe that, that uh, footballers ran around in, <laughs> in sort of such inferior quality. You know how it, uh, every shirt now, every country plays with really good, good equipment now. So there's no, you don't get, you don't get many shocks as such. Did you collect many shirts from your opponents over the years, David? I, you know, I had a, I had a few. Not we we weren't. Um, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I didn't play that often for in, in the in the international scene. So so I didn't have any, too many uh, continental, sh- uh, you know, uh, international shirts. But we we were occasionally uh, allowed to to change our our Liverpool shirts. Um, it wasn't it wasn't. Um, you know, quite as frequent as the players of the, you know, yeah. these days get the opportunity to do because Ronnie Moran, who was in charge of our kit, he tended to te- treat those shirts as if he's, they, they were his own and you were giving his, his money away, you know. <laughs> so um, we, we always had to uh, get permission if we, if we changed. But I've got some interesting ones, actually. I've got an England, I've got a Scotland shirt just like, just like the one that was in the corner yeah. at a, uh, I never played against Scotland as such, but Andy Roxburgh um, gifted me one um, right. uh, quite, quite randomly. Uh, he was down on the night of the Liverpool Saint Etienne game, right. and the day after the, the the game, he gifted me a shirt exactly the same as as that one. I had a, I think it was number well, I've still got it. It's number fourteen, mm-hmm. but um, but I played against um, you know teams from those countries, Russia and. Uh, uh, you know, Bulgaria and and, and the likes. The, the quality was so inferior. It's yeah. um, I've got an interesting Russian one. That, no, it's not an international. It's a Dynamo, uh, one of the Dynamo teams. Hmm. Um, it's like you know, the type of cloth you clean your car with more <laughs> more than more than wear for a football match. Which one? Which one that you do have? Would you say is your most prized? That's no, not a Liverpool one. Yeah, well, the Liverpool ones were always the, the 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 you know the ones that automatically sparked off memories, and mm. um, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've really got. I've got. I've still got a couple of shirts. I've got more more stuff left from my my time in Belgium and Switzerland than than Liverpool because people have tended to be well. They 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 collect Liverpool. Liverpool stuff is very collectible, yeah. and uh, it's been in demand down the years. So I kind of let let. A few of those those go to mm. some keen collectors, but um, I've been left with a, a few sort of Belgian and 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 Swiss, Swiss shirts, really, which no one probably would ever have heard of. So yeah. they're quite random. I think I think one one of the the things that we miss out on these days because of, I mean, players do change shirts, but they don't put them on, and so one of the things that you actually miss out on is seeing like a photographs of Danny McGrain with an England top on lifting up mm. a trophy and I, I sort of miss that that thing where you see really you know it's it's a sight that you shouldn't be seeing is certain players in certain shirts and the reason being is because that they've, they've swapped them at full time but they've actually then put them on and you just don't see that nowadays yeah some some guys yeah used to um, put the shirt on of the, the player that they'd exchange with you know mm. they weren't too worried about the sweaty uh, sweatiness of the smell of the uh, yeah. smell of them. Few few were a little bit more uh, what you know they were a bit more careful and maybe mm-hmm. you just see some some lads showing off their big hairy chest with um, <laughs> with the heads wrapped around their around their neck. You know there, there are lots of you, you saw things in the seventies which obviously have, have never really 
um, as time's passed on, that they they've gone from the game and seeing seeing something like this. Uh, I mean, this is quite tame. Uh, CJ Clement sort of uh, set up with this shot, but in the seventies, players used to get asked to to do all kinds of weird and wonderful things, and, and they were only ever too happy to to do it. It was yeah. it was a little bit, bit of publicity. These days, you sense that players probably wouldn't wouldn't um, take part in in some sort of photo stunts unless they were paid you know quite well for it so it's um i mean some of these things show up down the years you know players <laughs> in, in different things and i've had a few shocks down the uh, down the years um they were great but that was part of the fun of the of achieving having a big game you know where you've scored a few goals you're the hero of the hero of the hour so to speak and the next day you know, the, the press boys would come round to the ground and then have you doing all sorts, you know, whether or not it's putting cowboy hats on or <laughs> dressing up like, uh, you know, dressing up like whatever. You know, so, you know, Keegan and Tosh dressed up as Batman and Robin. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't think <laughs> no. you'd ever see Harry Kane and, um, and, and Wayne Rooney sort of dressed up as, you know, yeah. uh, in, in anything, anything so, uh, so weird and wonderful. I've certainly seen a lot of the ones that you talk about there, especially that Batman one. It's yeah, it reminds me of yeah. only, only Fools and Horses. I think is the same sort of looked at as that one. Yeah, the, 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 we had. Uh, I think there was a. There's a little bit of a, a thing that appears every now and again. as half a dozen of the Liverpool players all in um, in get-ups. I'm, I'm dressed up as a cowboy and um, and and one thing or another. Ray Clemens was uh, hanging out the wash, and I think of something or other. So. I mean that that was the thing, but I'd say that the main thing behind it was that the players' readiness to involve, you know, to get involved, have to have a little bit of fun, and and they, and they weren't sort of, um, you know, they weren't conscientious of their image. What they they, they just didn't, and everybody did, you know, everybody entered into the spirit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so well, just looking at Chris here himself. So he's he's got his his island kit there, but he's um, he's kitted out in a light blue polo type T-shirt. And mm. he's got his own um, dark blue or darker blue flared jeans mm. and sandals. He's wearing a pair of sandals there, thankfully without socks. So at least he's <laughs> he's covered himself there. So looking at the, the other stuff on the front page, we have there's an A to Z of Northern Ireland internationals inside. Um, other features on the front page are it's 12 pence and it says shoot incorporating goal. So the magazine is still highlighting the fact itself and Goal magazine merged previously. Now, shoot actually incorporated with Goal back in the 15th of June 1974. So here we are nearly two years later and they're still, you know, you think by this point they would have just got rid of that little bit. I, I was talking to a pal early on today. I was just telling him what I had in store and uh, tonight. And uh, he said, we in shoot? And I said, yeah, you know, it was quite amazed. I was, I was surprised he had that reaction. Yeah. But it, he was surprised I would, uh, I'd actually been in shoot. But I used to collect shoots from the day that they, they started, obviously, mm. many, many years ago, even well well before I became a footballer. And I used to have them all bound, and uh, they were quite collectible shoots, probably. Yeah. Um, don't know where, they, where, where they've all gone to these days, but... Um, all these things are good, good fun to 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 look back on. You know, many years later, and you see how you know twelve pence. What can you get for twelve pence these days? <laughs> Not a great deal. Yeah, well, that's my thing, David. Is that I I collect all football nostalgia. So I started off with tops football cards, which we collected as kids, and then I started collecting shoot magazines, match magazines, goal, Charles Bucking monthly, uh, Panini stickers. So I I've then built up my collection as well. So 
that's that's where my interest in all this comes from. So if if you want to know where the shoot magazines have gone, it's upstairs in my room. So there well, we go. probably in the loft, but uh, yeah, you know, I you know, remember buying the binders, and, and so I had them all very well well kept, all in good condition, and yeah. uh, and, and stuff. But um, it is great fun. It is good fun. It, it's it's you know it always evokes memories, whether or not you're looking at old programs or old magazines. Mm-hmm. So what else have we got here? Uh, part three of our special pullout, the FA Cup wall chart and colour inside. There's a focus in colour on Alan Kennedy and Newcastle United. And there's a club call on Aberdeen plus a team group in colour. Now, one of the things I, I, I find interesting from that is there's three separate parts of the front page that mentions it's in colour. And, you know, back then it must still have been quite a, a selling point that we've got colour things in here. So, woof, look at us. Yeah, because most of the stuff inside was black and white. Yeah. In which case, let's have a wee look inside. So pages two and three, we have News Desk compiled by Peter Stewart. And I'm going to pick a couple of things out from here. The first one is why Derek Duggan chose Kettering. So the first article in this feature looks at Derek Duggan and asks why he chose to join Kettering Town as chief executive. Now Derek says, the right offers from the league clubs were never made. I could have joined 20 league clubs, but most were in desperate financial trouble where the future would have been bleak. Kettering approached me and offered me the job. I liked the sound of it, and that was that. I signed up. The setup is fantastic. So Derek, we'd spend a couple of years at Kettering and would lead them to the third round of the FA Cup this season that we're talking about. He was also the man who came up with the idea of teaming up with local company Kettering Tyres and having the company name on their shirts. The first time this idea of sponsorship on shirts was done in England. The FA, however, demanded that the sponsors be removed from the shirts, to which Duggan attempted to circumvent that by shortening the text to Kettering T. The logo was eventually removed in June 1977. So there's a wee bit of history there, isn't it? The, you, you just don't really imagine that there was a point where there was no, you know, that the first person started thinking, let's put sponsorship on, on shirts, because... There was um, Talbot, wasn't it, with uh, Coventry City as well, with Jimmy Hill, yeah. that tried to do that as well. Um, famously in, in Scotland, Hibs, with Buckter on the front as well. And these, these were few and far between and caused a lot, of, a lot of problems, a lot of, you know, people were upset about this. And when you look at some kits nowadays, you just can't imagine there not being sponsorships. Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, it doesn't surprise you that, that the people that were involved in these initiatives, the likes of Derek Dugan, Jimmy Hill, I don't know who's involved in the, in the Hibs one, but mm. um, very strong individuals. Derek Dugan made a, a really good, you know, big name for himself. He was he was outspoken. He was he was chairman of the, uh, I think he was chairman of the PFA. I think uh, I think he was one of the early uh, players, chairman of the of the of the PFA, had a very forceful, strong approach on the pitch and he took that with him when he when he left football i mean he, he was he became a, a very prominent uh, pundit because he was outspoken he, you know he was a strong northern irish um personality and um innovative and i think you have to give credit to, to people who who tried to change the game jimmy hill was a was a was incredibly innovative um and, and was at the front of of a lot of change in, in football, and um, I think you know that Derek Dugan's personality went right through his his career, both on 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 and off the field. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, on to the next one is just four great players. So Coventry director Joe Mercer suggests that England could win the World Cup in Argentina with only four world-class players. And he backs up his suggestion by saying, when England won the World Cup, we only had four genuinely great players. Gordon Banks, Ray Wilson, Bobby Moore and Bobby Charlton. The German team in 1975 had Beckenbauer, Overath, Muller, Honus and possibly Breitner, but certainly no more. Now, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Um, I think there was there was more. The, I mean, possibly, even though he never actually played in the final, Jimmy Greaves could be classed as a, a genuinely world-class player. Yeah, I, th- I would agree. I think uh, uh, Jimmy, obviously, there's, there's been many things said about Jimmy Greaves' omission from the 66 final and... Um, uh, he was he was he was a top man, you know, inc- incredibly uh, talented, and uh, yeah, would, would would certainly be in that would would have been in that group. But Joe Mercer was a respected uh, manager and and man of football, and um, I suppose obviously he, he's talking about the individuals who actually took part in the in in, in the games, and um, he doesn't name my my all time favourites in, in in his four there, but. Um, I was a huge Roger Hunt fan and um, still my hero now. Never been anybody that's matched up to, uh, to, to Sir Roger, as we like to call him in Liverpool. Um, but I went to the 1966 final. I was only nine. So and anytime I see anything like this, it, it sort of, it really does take me back. Uh, I mean, this is very much the, my, my, my time of... Um, you know, watching football and 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 uh, and then obviously breaking into it. Mm-hmm. So you, you you made your debut with Liverpool just in the October November the year before. Is that right? Seventy five. I yeah. made my debut. Um, I mean, I was seventy um, seventy five. I was being I was being sort of. I mean, I've got articles there. I've been touted for to to to, to have been an outsider to have made the nineteen seventy six. European squad um, didn't happen in those days. It took more than perhaps to have half a dozen or, or you know, ten games, good games in the Premier League before you got an international cap. Unlike today, where you only have to have a good game and you uh, you find yourself in the international team. Mm. Um, and I, I finished the, the '76 season off very strongly and was being touted as you know, in in some by by some writers that that I should have sort of been maybe a, a sort of a late. A later addition to the to, to the group of seventy six, which um, uh, would have been you know would have been would have been amazing. Um, obviously, international footballers really were you you do want want to make your name, leave your mark. As all these all these names here are mentioned, you know they're all incredibly great 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 players. Well, I wanted to ask you, David, just uh, talking about you joining uh, Liverpool. Uh, Obviously, especially up here in Scotland, we're all very much aware of uh, Bill Shankly, but pretty much all in sound bites and grand statements. And I know you never actually played a game under him, but he was the manager that signed you. So I just wanted to ask what he was like on a sort of one-to-one basis. Uh, he, he was an amazing man, Shanks. Um, you know, he, he was a man that we all, you know, looked to. He, he was he, he was God in, in, in Liverpool in through the 60s. What, what he did in, in terms of creating the, the the great team, the the the, the Liverpool lifestyle, the mantra, and um, and he just 
he, he was just pure passion and enthusiasm. And you never heard a negative sound from Shanks's, you know, thoughts. He, he was always talking about great to be alive and not under, you know, not underachieving and to give your best. And you should be, you know, proud and honoured to be at Anfield and at Liverpool and be be doing what you were doing. And um, even as a young boy, um, you know, we, we were in plenty of situations where, where, where Shanks spoke to us as a group or would, would pick pick you out one morning, might just wander over to you and just sort of give you, you know, some sort of input about maybe what you've been doing or what, what he had in store for you. Um, uh, I got to know Shanks better probably after he retired than, than actually in, in, the, in the team because... When he, when he was manager of Liverpool because he you know he, he had you have that kind of fear factor and you have that distance and you had the respect for him whereas afterwards he became a little bit more sort of easier to to be in the you know he didn't have that quite that position of, of power so you, so you felt a little bit more at ease in, in his company but again it was all about enthusiasm and the joy of life and and, and po- you know positivity he was, he was an incredible positive you know human being. So the next article we're going to look at is free passes is the heading. And it says, in the days of falling attendances, Scottish First Division Club Dumbarton have come up with a remarkably brave but far-sighted idea. At every home game, 50 local children are handed complimentary tickets and given their own spot in the enclosure. Now, club secretary John Hosey says, we contact headmasters of schools in the area and inform them that 50 tickets are available to their pupils. They select who will come along and usually a couple of teachers accompany them. We've already had about 500 youngsters in like this and we know that some of them are now coming back every week paying more at the gate and bringing their dads with them. The Barton's thought process behind this idea is that today's guests are tomorrow's paying customers. Now just on that, that's so Tom and myself are, are both Clyde Bank supporters and moderations. <laughs> and when when, the reason I became a Clydebank supporter was through this exact sort of process. I was given a season ticket from our school, and it was it was a it was a local club. You know, I could walk there in probably about half an hour or something. Yeah. Um, and I I this idea it just for me it's an idea that should be done a lot more by clubs at all levels to get people interested because it, it worked for me. I mean, I'm still yeah. involved and still still you know following the team and you know being a fan and it's like yeah. it doesn't take much effort to to do that free passes I'm, I'm a big fan of that yeah i, I agree it's it's fantastic and i, and I just obviously i think it, it's it's to be respected anybody sticks with their local team and the team that they're fe- that you know that, that they're first attracted to and, and you, you you go through all the thick and the thin and um you know, you you you're just wrapped up in the in the whole thing. I think I think it's. I'm very lucky. I I grew up a few hundred yards away from Anfield, so I don't have any problems sort of justifying why I'm a Liverpoolian. But I mean, people who come from the other end of the country and and what have you, um, you know, that they make their choice for all kinds of different reasons. But I think it, I think it's it's great that. That, um, that that people do ha- feel a part of a community, feel a, a part of a, a of a club like in this situation Dumbarton, um, and and yeah, very much the you know obviously the likes of Liverpool maybe 
you know, Manchester United people have not not always had that opportunity to to gift tickets away. Liverpool of late, some of the, I mean, last year they they um, they had an FA Cup replay uh, against Shrewsbury. They gave a lot of tickets away, um, which I think it was was, you know, it's a rarity in, in in Liverpool's case. But I think that there is the the um, the the belief that you know the sentiment here. You know, get kids involved at a young age. You, you've got them who, you know, hopefully that they they, they they hook onto you a little bit, and somewhere down the line they, they will become you 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 pay in public of uh, down the years. But one thing about when you get kids at, at games and um, when you um, if you ever remember schoolboy internationals and stuff mm-hmm. like that, the noise it's it's always positive. You don't get booing and jeering from kids. It's only enthusiasm. It's passion. Yeah. It's you know it's it's all. You know, pro stuff. It's 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 great, and I think, you know, you have all these memories that they get excited and and all that stuff. There, there was I saw a feature on um one of the Scottish teams, and I can't remember. I'm not sure it was, was Dunbar. There's um there's a group of young lads that have become fierce supporters yeah, of the, um. That's that that yeah, yeah. Barton, yeah. And uh, it's brilliant. You know, it's brilliant. I mean, obviously, you see some of the older guys who are who are sitting there <laughs> thinking, like, what's all this racket going on? But yeah. I mean, uh, it's great for the players. The manager certainly appreciates the the you know the the drive that the that these young lads sort of uh, send out. So um, no, I, I think disappointing maybe that this you know this is coming from 1978, and mm. and we haven't seen probably you know really much more of this yeah um but um now it, it's a great incentive and i you know it'd lovely it'd be great to know how many of the uh these local kids are still season to go you know yeah. still season to go mm, absolutely no you, you made the point there and as i read this it was on a view from the terrace wasn't it tom that yeah, they're doing exactly the same thing they're letting the fans the young fans in the, the as you said david the, they've got their own little section where they they bang drums and they make noises and stuff, and you can see all the the older fans going. I wish they would just shut up. <laughs> but you know, it's it's the future. It's the future. Well, yeah, it's not, it's positive, isn't it? You know, as mm. I say, they don't they don't all shout, they don't get off, and all this type of stuff, and your yeah. rubbish and all that. Look, it's 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 all it's all helping. It's all enthusiasm. It's great. Yeah. So this next one we're going to look at is language problem, and it's about Peter Latchford, so the English goalkeeper who has made a big hit with Celtic. Reckons he has fully adjusted to life in Scotland. He's now moved to the area with his wife, but perhaps his biggest obstacle so far has been learning the language. Mm. Yeah, I know. Peter says, The dialect was hard for me to follow at first, but now I know what expression like geese the bar and leave it alone mean. I'm enjoying playing for Celtic. Now, the point I'd like to make here is Peter's from Birmingham. So I'm guessing, you know, he's probably got quite a strong Brummie accent himself. So <laughs> I can imagine maybe a combination of both the Glaswegian and the Brummie accent wasn't wasn't the greatest combination to try and try and learn it with. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, <laughs> well, if he was having problems from Birmingham in, in later years, some of these guys have come from from farther afield of uh, will have even greater problems um, <laughs> yeah. with with some of the uh, uh, colloquial sort of phrase, phrases and stuff. I mean, we had we had a hell of a problem understanding Kenny Dalgleish, you know. I mean, particularly the likes of Abby Cohen, you know. He was... Uh, Abby coming from Israel yeah. and Kenny from Glasgow. Uh, neither of them knew what each other was on about. So. Yeah. 
Okay, the next one here is, it's about Air Academy, it says. So Air Academy must be the only school in Britain to have provided three different international stars in three different sports. They are Ian McLaughlin, who presented Scotland, he, he was the present Scotland rugby skipper. Ian Ewer, the former Arsenal and Scotland stopper, pictured beside the article. And Mike Dennis, former England cricket captain. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 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 I don't profess to know fact anything about cricket so what what are the rules with cricket about representing england is it about playing in one of the county sides yeah i, I would um you know what i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't be i couldn't be definitive because i'm just as i say i was about to say something but then you think well viv richards played for somerset so he, he couldn't play for england so somewhere along the line mike deness must have um must have qualified on the on the parents and thing. Hmm. I, I suspect. I don't think it was a great. Um, I don't think it was a great um, talking point. But he he was you know he, he was remembered as a a solid a solid captain. Um, you know obviously uh, you know maybe that's a this the Scott in him that uh, made him forceful and uh, and then you know allowed you know allowed him to be in charge of um, some some really good players obviously cricket was it was it was it was a great year for 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 cricket in the in, in the 70s mm-hmm. uh, but i remember ian your yeah and um i somebody superimposed my head actually on an ian, on a picture of ian your um <laughs> for a bit on a birthday card right. upstairs when he was playing for manchester united uh was it or oh, well, he played arsenal against manchester united yeah. right um yeah, uh, you know, I mean, he he looked he looked a he looked a big figure, a man, didn't he? He and mm. you, you know, he looked a very physical type. I remember him. Uh, I remember him playing a little bit. Um, yeah, famous famous name from the past. He and you. I think any photograph I've ever seen him, apart from this one, it looks as though he's about to start scrapping with someone. There's always mm. someone just out a shot that he's you know about to start you know going mm. up towards. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, big, big, forceful guy. I think he played for Hibs, didn't he? Was it Hibs he played for? Dundee, I think he came Dundee, from Dundee. Dundee yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, he always had a, you know, I mean, he had a good head of hair and uh, mm. big, strong, uh, big, strong chin. You know, <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't want to mix it with uh, with Ian Ewer. Yeah. Okay. Next one here is Reds robbed. So the, the, this article here could be just um, sort of the, the the stereotype image of Liverpool, but we'll, we'll read it anyway. It says, someone on Merseyside is the proud owner of two complete sets of Liverpool's playing and training gear, much to the annoyance of the club. The kit was stolen from a van en route to the laundry. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that that's that's just, as I say, it's just playing up to this stereotype, isn't it? Um, which, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of those sort of things, but um, it's quite humorous. It's quite humorous. I think, uh, yeah, obviously, um, we, we are... Uh, we, we we do have a, a reputation for for certain things on Liverpool, <laughs> but uh, sometimes you, you look at these things and you think true or false, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not convinced that's a, um, I'm not I'm not convinced. That I haven't been around at that time. I'm not convinced that that's a that that's a true tale. Yeah, as, as you were saying about who was it that looked after the kits? Was it Ronnie, Ronnie Moran? Ronnie Moran. I mean, yeah, you they, would... they were. Uh, I mean, more often than not, Ronnie's wife cleaned the kit. And the train, the training kit, um, never got cleaned from one one season to another. Well, <laughs> did at the end of the season, uh, the kit, the, the kit you you had for training, when you started it, 
with it in July, you, you finish with it the following May. Uh, the, the only thing it'd, be, it'd been dried in the, uh, you know, throughout the winter, it was it, it was it was a a, a serious health hazard. Uh, we're in Liverpool's training kit. Mm-hmm. I, I think if this had genuinely happened, you would have heard about it from Ronnie, wouldn't you? There would have been without, without shadow. I think the, the boys would have. Even the boys might have stolen it themselves to get some fresh kit. Because I'll be honest with you, the end of the week, the end of the week, Monday to Friday, your socks stood up on on a Friday. They were. Uh, you know, they were, um, it, it was horrendous. Anybody that was at Liverpool through the 70s will tell you it, it wasn't, um, we, you, weren't, you weren't treated uh, like stars. Yeah. Maybe that was uh, that was maybe one of our secrets. Well, we'll go with that. We'll say it was an inside job, shall we? That, that's, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds, uh, it, it <laughs> sounds maybe on the, on the right line. Yeah. The next one here is Go Down the Mines, and this is Stuart Walker, a 25-year-old York keeper who's only turned pro last July. And he has a sound message for the temperamental stars of modern day soccer. He says, before signing for York, I was a fitter at a coal mine. And I think if a lot of pro players had a few weeks underground, they would be not so temperamental. They would surely be, then be thankful they are good enough to play the greatest sport in the world for a living. I still go and see my old mining mates and realise how lucky I am. I served a tough apprenticeship with them. It will help me try all the harder in football. Now, just a wee spoiler on Stuart here. He, he actually only managed two league games in total for York City before injury ended his professional career. He then had a spell with Marine in non-league football, yeah. and he became round a physio round the corner from here. Mm-hmm. He became a physiotherapist and is actually still at the last last um, count. He was working at Aston Villa as a physio, so he's still there at the moment. But yeah, it's 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 that strong message of you know players who. I mean, talking about footballers back then being, you know, they don't know what a, a proper day's work is and things like that. And if if only they could then jump forward to now and see what's happening, they would. They, he wouldn't be able. Stuart Walker would go mad, wouldn't he? Trying to deal with that. Yeah, I think I think that is the, you know, that that's a harsh reality. And and I suppose a lot of modern footballers don't choose to look, you know, back, uh, look, you know, look at the what they have these days. Uh, you, you, unfortunately, times moved on. I, I think, but there, there, there was a great, um, there was a genuine belief that you were lucky to be a footballer in in in, in those days and um, lads and, and before. I mean, lads who, who became footballers, they they tried to make the most of the opportunity. Think of Ian Wright, who who didn't come into the game till he was about twenty two or something. Um, so so lads, you know, Jimmy Case was a was a, a part time prof, uh, professional, was an electrician. Um, and you know, whilst, whilst it doesn't compare to being a minor, I think if you if you do realise how fortunate you are to, to be running out every morning, keeping fit, um, you know, for a couple of hours a, a day, um, you know, for the most part, it's it's a very very fortuitous situation you find yourself in, and um, and this is obviously, I mean, it's it's a, it's a very emotive little tale and um it's it, it's 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 interesting but mm. it, it, it was football of the of the time um you know all, all credit to him for you know for having experienced that and then and then making a, a most of it making the most of it and remaining in football all these years later i think i think an interesting thing about that is that you know the, there wasn't a great deal of money in the game for players then 
yeah. and that was the period where they counted themselves lucky to be playing that and it, it seems that the more money's come into it the less they actually realise how lucky they are when they should probably be thinking that they're more lucky does that make sense? Life, life, life has changed in so many ways and you can go on a long time about you know what has created the, these these people you know the players now who, who sort of they've been spoilt but I mean somewhere along the line when you when you were an apprentice in certainly in our day in the 70s and, and and beforehand you know you heard of the jobs that you used to do cleaning bats mopping floors you know hanging out the kit doing jobs around the pitch and all those type of things before you got into to being a pro, a pro footballer um, and then you were only uh, like a, a say maybe a reserve at, at 17 or 18 but uh, you had a hard ground in it and from being maybe this sort of star maybe in, in schoolboy football and you think well I'm going to be a footballer you go into a club all of a sudden when you go into that club now where you might have been the star of the team that you played for you're bottom of the ladder you know and there was a great sort of leveling and, and sort of a, a, a situation that, that prepared you for you know being being sort of where you where you were and, uh, and you know giving you a grounding I thought and I think so I don't think it was a great thing when when young lads came into football clubs and were automatically sort of you know they they, they get these days that you know you, you go to a, a club a professional club in England you get you get picked up probably by by a driver you get taken to the training ground and all these things and by the time you're 17 18 you're driving a Range Rover uh, and all these things, you know. So it's it's sort of um, that's all being taken out. This grounding type of thing, people get far too much too early. I think. Mm. I th- you know, you could maybe say that you can't really blame the players for it. It's it's the whole situation around it that that leads to that, you know, environment rather than the players. But um, yeah, I absolutely agree I, with you. I, I don't think there's a little. I think there's a little. You know, a few things have, have, have changed. I mean, we're we're kids. We're once upon a time. Kids are you know, kids are very precious. Uh, you know, I, I don't lose that fact. But I mean, the, you know, you, you see kids getting you know maybe getting injured slightly on a pitch. Kids are a bit more mollycoddled now than they were in, in years gone by. So the society has changed. It's it's not a, it's not an easy one to, to answer. But I think it's great, and it, I think if you if, you know like us, we're we're looking at this. 40 years later um how how um how, how lads came through in into the game and um you know they they, they came from a, a ground and that they appreciated that they were happy to be a footballer and you see the stories today you know with with the england players mm-hmm. um you know not respecting the, the how fortunate they were to 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 be where they are uh, and and to go and break rules just like that, it just shows how, how society's changed. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, but well, well done, Stuart Walker. Still in the game. To yeah, day, fantastic. So well done to him. Next one we're going to look at is Taffyville is the headline. So we'll have a wee look at this, and it says supporters of Bristol Rovers are thinking of renaming their ground from Eastville to Taffyville because they have so many Welsh-born players on the staff. Recently, the club took a team to play a charity game in Wales. And the whole party, the team and subs, were born in the country. With the opening of the Severn Road Bridge and extension of the M4 motorway, the soccer-mad folk in the Welsh Valleys are just an hour's car ride from Bristol. <laughs> mm. that's, a, that's a lovely one there. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bristol Road was... The, 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 when I had a spell in the third division towards the end of my career and... Uh... 
there weren't many Welsh players in, in in the team at that point. They were they were pretty uh, pretty decent team, and uh, I'm sure this, it didn't go down too well in Bristol Rovers. Um, that they were full of Welsh players at, the, at that point. There's nothing more than you'd like to see sort of homegrown players at least sort of featuring in your in in, in your team. Probably uh, probably the manager was Welsh as well. So next one we're going to look at is Cosmopolitan Peterhead. So Highland League side Peterhead have rapidly become in Scotland's United Nations side. The reason? They've built up a good following amongst the American, Chinese and Italian communities in the town. Alan Mundy, the club secretary, says, A number of Americans from the North Sea oil rigs have become very passionate about football and follow us regularly. And because of the oil boom, a number of Italian and Chinese restaurants have opened in the area and we get a lot of their waiters coming along. You know, I'd, n- I'd never even thought about that, the, the, the knock-on effect of, you know, the oil boom yeah, to Americans yeah. because there's more people there, the restaurants open up and, you know, the Italians come in and the Chinese come in and then they start following the local team. I, I, I love that as a, as a story. I think that's absolutely great. Yeah, the, um, just wonder, you know, in what numbers... Uh... It's, it's it's nice. It's it's a great community uh, thing, but I've never imagined Chinese uh, waiters to really be into football um, mm. that that much. Yeah, uh, Italians perhaps, but yeah, yeah. You see, I don't I don't think the numbers would have been. I mean, probably in relation to um, Peterhead. Yeah, oh, cool. it's it's. Oh, look at this. It's a it's a, a flood of three or four new people that have come in to watch us. So, you know, it's all relative, <laughs> I guess, isn't it? Okay, so so the next one is give players a star treatment, says TV's Bill Maynard, um, who I remember from The Gaffer. That's the one that I remember him from the most. Comedian Bill Maynard thinks that managers dealing with problem players and falling crowds need to look at how players are handled, saying, they are the stars and should be treated as such. I would tell them how great they are, and those who aren't so good, I would tell them to work hard on their weaknesses. The players have a responsibility to entertain the public. They should be trying to do this all the time. The bill mentions Frank Worthington and Rodney Marsh as two players who he admires as entertainers. And there's an accompanying black and white photograph of Bill with a huge smile on his face, and it looks as though he's been out shooting grouse or something as well, because he's got a rifle over his shoulder and he's holding a bird. So I guess it's sort of the opposite of what Stuart was saying uh, previously, isn't it? So Stuart's saying they need to toughen up and realise how hard it is, you know, in a proper job. And he's saying, Bill Maynard's saying, ah, you need to look after them, you need to blow smoke up their backside and things like that. So Yeah, but I mean, Rodney wouldn't have lasted as long as he did, or Frank. I mean, they, they you know, they, they, they took the knocks as well. Mm-hmm. So, so whilst... Uh, they they were two of the you know so so called entertainers of the time. Certainly, they were both flamboyant and they stood out in a crowd with their with their fashion and their hairstyles and stuff. They were they were still hardy, tough lads because they they had long careers and you didn't you didn't last long in in, in football. I mean, Ronnie was playing from probably mid sixties to to late late seventies. And uh, hard to do that with the, the position of it. And, and I would say Frank was the Frank Frank was the same. They, they, had, they had a bit of grit, but I mean, I think that that goes. I think I think lads did, you know, generally, uh, you know, appreciate the, the the chance that they were given and the opportunities that that, that were sort of there for them. You know, mm-hmm. 
So moving on to page six, and this is two former first division managers now masterminding third division promotion chasers. This is Noel Cantwell of Peterborough and Malcolm Allison of Crystal Palace. So we'll look at Peterborough are now back in the map, says Noel Cantwell. So Noel Cantwell talks about his progression with Peterborough after being dismissed by Coventry. When he took over, Peterborough were, as Noel puts it, three points below the second last team in the Football League, which I think is a great way of saying that you're bottom of the league. Um, his goal was to make them a second division team within four years. Having won the fourth division two years ago, they came close to promotion to the second division last year. Injuries to key players such as John Cousins and Chris Turner have cost them, in Noel's opinion, in both la that season and this season so far. As a spoiler, they finished in 10th position this year and Cantwell moved to the States in May of 77 to manage the New England T-Men, who became the Jacksonville T-Men between 77 and 82. He had a two-year spell back at Peterborough between 86 and 88, but by this point, the posh were back in the fourth division and would stay there for the rest of his reign. So we, we'd spoke about the New England T-Men before, changing name to, because I, I know you played in the States yourself, David, the New England T-Men changed to Jacksonville T-Men and asked Tom, do you know why they, they changed their name? And it's simply because they changed where they were. It was, they, they played in New England and then, yeah, then they moved to Jacksonville. Yeah, the, the the well as as um, I mean all the clubs were they were they were owned by the NASL basically. When the, the identities were owned by the by the league, so you know the fact that it was based in Jacksonville, change, you know, changed from sort of Boston area. Um, I played against Jacksonville actually, uh, and they, they were the team in when I played against them. Um, I was I was there for one summer in '82. Um, remember Noel Cantwell, obviously, as a you know, was a, a member of the fullback for Manchester United. That's how far back I go. So, I think in this magazine, there's actually a, quite a few references to players you've probably played against in the States as well as in England. So, this was this was obviously this is very much in my my time. So, it's it's you know, there's uh, there's, there's very few probably who, not fam who I'm not familiar with. Mm. So next one we're going to look at is Malcolm Allison, and he reveals why I want to succeed with Crystal Palace. So Shute says that Allison is one of those people in soccer that fans apparently love to hate. Outspoken Allison says, Up to now, people have said Malcolm Allison is a good coach, but they're loath to admit that I'm a good manager as well. I aim to prove that. Allison, who previously enjoyed considerable success at Man City with Joe Mercer, was asked about the differences between life in the first division and life in the third division. He says, it's a different smell at the top of the first. You go to big stadiums and perform in front of 40,000. The adrenaline flows easily because the atmosphere stimulates you. In the third division, you go to Halifax or Shrewsbury and play in front of crowds that haven't had anything to cheer for years. The grounds can be grim, they need a lick of paint, and the atmosphere is dead. It's enough to bring players down. And he, say, he feels, though, that he has the players in his team who can deal with this, especially away from home when they roll up their sleeves and get on with the job. And he singles out Peter Taylor as the star man in the team, saying, Peter is the best wide player this country has produced in 10 years. You know, as a spoiler, this season would be a mixed bag for Alisson, as Palace would beat Leeds United, Chelsea and Sunderland in the FA Cup before being put out by Southampton in the semi-final. But they would also fail to win promotion. And Alison would resign in May this year as well. 
So a bit of a mixed bag. But yeah, the, the more I read him, Malcolm Allison, he, he certainly seems a bit of a, a colourful character, should we should we call that? Yeah, he was. And I think if you ever see any images of Malcolm Allison, he always looked well. Obviously, there he's well tanned and and stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, wore big coats for the fedora, like the cigars, he liked champagne. They, had a, they used to have a TV programme, a football uh, magazine programme down here, um, kick-off on a Friday night. So I met up with Malcolm Allison once, twice on those shows. Um, and he was always larger than life, huge, uh, you, know, he, you know, huge personality. Uh, he was good for the game and, 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 he, and he made great for papers because he, he made headlines. He'd come out with, with some things that ordinary, you know, sort of ordinary run-of-the-mill managers weren't prepared to, to, to say. And he probably got himself in a, you know, in a few sort of embarrassing spots, really, because, you know, not, not fulfilling maybe what he was sort of um, often sort of quick to, to tell people, we'll achieve, we'll do this, we'll do that. Mm, certainly a character, certainly a character. So moving on to the next page, which is Worldwide, compiled by Chris Davies, and we're going to look at this wife band. So Timo Konietzka, the manager of Swiss side FC Zurich, has forbidden his wife to attend the team's games. His decision follows an incident a few minutes before the end of the local derby against Grasshoppers. He was called to the stand because his wife had fainted. Yeah, yeah that's... That's he's not going to be happy about that, is he? He's not going to be happy. No. Well, it... I know. I mean, that that story brings back a lot of memories for me. I um, I came across Timo Konietzka because I played in Switzerland. Yeah. I played in um, I played in Lucerne for two years, and um, we played FC Zurich in the uh, in the European Cup semi final mm -hmm. in nineteen uh, in nineteen seventy eight. Um, wasn't it? It was 70, uh, in 77, rather. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, always, it's always nice. Obviously, in those days, I would, not, I would not have looked at anything like this. A story about Swiss football wouldn't have interested me, but uh, I was later to go and play there. It was, it was a, an, interesting, an interesting football environment. What was the level like there coming from the English first division? You know, as I said this sometimes the other day to somebody else in, in a different analogy, um, Tom, um, you, you think because you played at Liverpool, you, you, you know, you've been European cup holders and all this type of thing, and you go to, you're going to go to a league, that the, the Swiss league. You said, well, obviously you think you're going to be, it's going to be easy, you're going to be much better than anybody in the, in the Swiss league. But, you know, it doesn't happen that way, does it? It's, it's, they, they, were, uh, they, were, they were tough. They were very physical. Football played at a different tempo. And, uh, and, and it, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't a walk in the park kind of thing for me. And, and big things were expected of me. I was under pressure. It was, it was a great experience. Life was, life was great, but um, very physical football, the Swiss. And uh, as an international team, I think they, they could do quite well maybe when they were playing at home. You took Swiss out their own environment. They tended to sort of, to, you know, didn't have quite the same sort of confidence. Mm. Okay, so the next one we're going to look at in this page is Zagallo to Kuwait. So former manager of Brazil, Mario Zagallo, pictured below the article, has landed himself a plum job. He's now in charge of the Kuwait national team and the oil-rich country has certainly been generous to Zagallo. His salary is £3,500 a month with bonuses for winning matches. He has a car with chauffeur and a luxury bungalow supply-free. My first... My first um, thing I've got to take to task here is 
do they call them bungalows in Kuwait? I don't think they maybe mm. call them bungalows. But three and a half thousand pound a month back in nineteen seventy six is that's incredible. Yeah, it's decent. Uh, it was decent money. Um, you know, as part of a thousand pound a week, he's up there with the in seventy eight. What are you thinking? He's probably yeah, it's probably double to any football any footballer hmm. was actually on. So um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it sounds it sounds like an awful lot then. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah. but uh, but not not um, you know not not later. I mean, footballers soon found footballers soon caught him up. I think on that <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, just this next one I find quite funny. So Dynamo Kiev is accused of a bribe. It says, a West German newspaper has accused Russian champions Dynamo Kiev of accepting 18 leather jackets for their players in return for a reasonable result in a friendly against Fenerbahce of Turkey. The Russians took a 2-0 lead, but Fenerbahce forced a 2-2 draw. The paper claimed that all 22 players left the fields with their arms raised. The Turkish equaliser was after a Kiev player had given the ball to a Fenerbahce forward. UEFA are looking into the matter. I, I just love the idea of um, a, a whole team just appearing with the same leather jacket on, you know, getting <laughs> onto the plane back. It's incredible. It's uh, and that that seems like one of them strange but true stories, you know. That that's um, yeah. Uh, you, you can imagine all kinds of goings on in in, in, in Turkish football in, mm. in in those days. Yeah, I, I did have a wee I did have a wee check to see if I could find any sort of record of it, but there wasn't anything. But um, let's let's just. Let's just hope that it was true. So, and I don't, I don't think UEFA would uh, looked too far into the matter. I think <laughs> no. it was, uh, yeah. yeah. Anybody knows anything about UEFA? Was, was that that was? Uh, I think they probably got a couple of the leather jackets. Well. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. So next one is about El Salvador and Honduras, and this this was something I wasn't really aware of, but it says apparently El Salvador and Honduras will not play against each other in the nineteen seventy eight World Cup qualifying ties. When the countries last met, it triggered off a war. Mm. Now, it, the, there was a war between the two countries which became known as the Football War or the, the Hundred Hours War, which occurred in 1969. While not directly and solely linked to a game of football, existing tensions between the two countries rose over a period of a two-legged tie and a resulting playoff game where rioting occurred at all the games. So, yeah, it was one of these things that there was already tensions and, you know a lot going on between the two of them and it just the, the football games allowed I guess those tensions to come out and there was this hundred hour war that, that that took place so I wasn't I wasn't really aware of that so that that was that was nice to know. There, was lot, there was a lot going on in Central America in that time British Army were were in were in situ weren't they in um over there in Belize and, and all around that area, so it was. Uh, we knew it was a hot spot, but I mean, yeah, football amongst that there, amongst those types of countries would have been uh, would have been physical. Yeah. So moving on to pages ten and eleven. So the first one is a full colour photo of Kevin Keelan of Norwich City, and it's a great photo. I think it's a photo from a game, but it's obviously at a stage of the game where there isn't much going on. Judging by his pose, he looks unperturbed with his hands on his hips. He's wearing an all-green goalkeeper top with wing collars. The Norwich badge is there with an umbro diamond on the opposite side of the chest. The shorts and socks are the outfield ones, which I'm always a big fan and I don't like the way these goalkeeper kits have all become one colour, you know, but that's that's the, the old nostalgic person in me. 
So he's wearing the outfield shorts and socks, so green shorts and yellow socks. Uh, there's a bit of paint on his his knees as well, and he's not wearing any shin guards, which is pretty obvious from that. Now in the background on the left, you can just make out a blurry... So I was trying to work out who they were playing. So you can just make out a blurry player. I think that's Crystal Palace. Mm, yeah, um, probably uh, every chance. So, or I said it could well be. Um, in fact, no, I, I changed my mind. I thought maybe it was Burnley because they just recently played them at Carroll Road. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's probably just. It looks as though he's just waiting for somebody to kick the ball back to him for a goal kick or something like that. The sock on the sock of the player is uh, white with a white with a um, the maroon top. It's probably you know what it probably is Burnley. Yeah, it looks like it's a maroon shirt actually yeah. with, a, with a number with a number on. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably is Burnley. Mm. So so Kevin again played in the states. Uh, he played for the New England team men uh, between seventy eight and seventy nine, and well between then and eighty Jacksonville team men between eighty and eighty one. So he continued in that. He was there for three years, and then Tampa Bay Rowdies as well, which he. He was assistant manager as well as a player there as well. So he, I think, I, I checked up, he's actually moved to the States permanently and he's been over there for quite a few years. And um, so other teams that he played for, Wrexham before he played for Norwich. And yeah, he was born He was born in India. I think his, yeah. dad, his dad was in the army. I think, so. I think there was a feeling that somebody used to think he was Indian. But mm. I mean, he just had the, the very dark hair and, yeah. and great tan. I mean, obviously... Uh, you know, he had, he had that all year round tan, which mm. uh, he always looked well. Kevin Keelan, yeah. Bob Paisley, uh, you know, there are many stories about Paisley, but I, I often tell him when we were playing Norwich and he said, We noticed, he said, when we, we when we, we looked at Norwich last week, he said, Keelan, he said, when he dives to his right, he's got short arms. <laughs> and he used to think, we sort of think, what does he mean by that? You know, but what he what he meant was uh, if Keelan's diving to that off to the to the right hand side, he led with his left hand, which yeah. obviously he used half a thing. You know, yeah. these little things you you notice. Um, you know, you know the Kevin story earlier on you know, about TV identifying identifying strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Paisley was very good at, at, at sort of doing that. It wasn't wasn't always comfortable in front of the, the group, the team, but he did just come along next year and just tell you a little bit maybe about the guy you were. That you were coming up against. Yeah, I mean, and they, they, these pictures, like, of, of you know, those be. I mean, you dreamt of having a picture taken like that of you know, Asa <laughs> Hartford. As much as being a footballer, you thought, I can't wait to have my picture in the shoot and yeah. in, in, in that type of pose. You know. Yeah. So we'll look at Asa. So the one thing I, I, when when I see this, as you mentioned, it, it is a classic footballer's pose, and I think the only thing that's maybe missing is a football just in front of him. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's crouched down, one hand on on the floor. The other hand, sort of lean, or the arm leaning on his knee. Um, the shirt is a light blue Man City, your, your, your classic Man City strop. But this one's an Airtex one, so you can see mm. the little holes in it as well. And he's wearing a pair of Adidas boots. Now, at first, I wasn't sure whether, when I couldn't really see properly. And at first, I thought maybe he's used his dubbing on the boots over the white bits, but I think they're actually yellow, yellow. ones. So. Yeah. Yeah, smart, very smart. Love those. Yeah, probably early, early in the season. Pitch looks well. He's uh, got his little tan as well. Yeah. Uh, you played with Asa briefly. At I, played with, I played. I did at Norwich. Um, he's a great guy, Asa. I mean, you know, only had a sort of short spell, kind of getting to know him. But I met him then many times after, after um, 
you know, I I, I packed him playing, and uh, and he was scouting, and but he, he's a great uh, great fella, Asa Hartford, great footballer. Did you ever find out why he was called Asa? Do you know the story? Uh, I did hear it, but his name real name's Richard, isn't it? Yeah, Richard Asa Hartford, but his his dad was a big Al Jolson fan. Ah, right. And Al Jolson's real name is Asa Jolson, so. Right. Yeah. So that that's the story with that, but yeah, he, he's he's from Clydebank as well, so he's he's a bit of a, a local legend up there. Oh, he's a real character, Asa. Yeah, the, he was a real. Uh, he, he was lively, you know, really interesting little fella, ducking and diving. Uh, <laughs> you had to keep your keep your eyes on Asa, you know. Yeah. So just have a wee move on to the you are the ref. So we're looking at the you are the ref. So I'm going to pick out um, a couple of them from here. So the first one is you are about to drop the ball in the penalty area when you see the goalkeeper in a crouched position ready to grab the ball. Do you A, proceed, B, order the goalkeeper to stand upright or C, have the keeper replaced by another defender? Now my first thought here is I, I, goalkeeping is my position as well. I think that's a great idea for a goalkeeper. You know, if there's a drop ball in the box, it's just get right down. As soon as it's dropped, you just drop your body onto it. I mean, you may, <laughs> you may take a kick in the head or something, but... So, what's your thoughts? What do you think? Proceed, order the keeper to stand upright or have the keeper replaced by another defender? I would say a goalkeeper can't take play, can't be a part of a, a drop ball. Hmm. I would say, see, have the player replaced. It's a it's correct answer, but the reason they say it is because it's an unfair advantage of using his hands and also because of the potentially dangerous situation, which is fair right. enough. So the, the next one we're going to look at is number four, and this is a, a goal kick. So this one's in two parts. At a goal kick, the goalkeeper places the ball in the boundary of the line of the goal area. You order him to move the ball inside the boundary line. So in B, there's a, there's a great, you can even see the petulance in, in this one. The keeper then deliberately kicks the ball into his own goal. You caution him and restart with a goal kick. So where was the problem in these two? Shall we go for the answer? So the fact is, firstly, he shouldn't have made them move it inside because obviously it's it's, it's okay, on, the on the line. Yeah. Mm. So, but it says that you were right to to caution the goalkeeper for his for his petulance. I, I love little ones like that where they they just take the huff. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen it happen. I must admit. So hmm. I was I was going to ask David because I've noticed around at this time, it wasn't always the way with you other ref, but around this time. It would be players, actual you know players. Like I saw one, I can't remember who it was, um, but it was a Man City player. Did you ever knowingly appear as one of the the, the players in the, one of the drawings in the you are the ref feature? You know, I never, I can't even, I can't ever remember thinking about that actually. Mm. I tell you yeah. what, I'll, I'll make that my 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 homework, and I'll look through <laughs> them all and see if I can find if he appeared in it. I was I was at I was at Lee I was at Liverpool. Uh, we were in the cup the day that uh, Gary Sprake threw the ball into his own goal, <sighs> and uh, and the Leeds Leeds players were trying to say to the referee, "That's not allowed. You can't throw the ball into your own goal." Mm. But I mean, uh, obviously uh, not the case. But that was that was weird and wonderful. That was a. Uh, I mean, you see some things down the down life, and you. you 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 know you remember it forever, and that that was like that was incredible seeing Gary Sprake just you know go to throw it out and then you know weirdly throw it into his own goal. Do you know now you mentioned that I think that may have appeared in one of these because I I, I can visualise 
Gary Sprake because it was he had that hair yeah. which sort of came out at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there was definitely yeah. a drawing with that. So yeah. I will. Well, Leeds, play, Leeds players are giving it all that. They're putting the pressure on. We're going to jump out of the magazine just for a for a few minutes here, and we're going to do. And I know for a fact you've done one of these before because I've seen it. The focus on. So I'm just going to throw a few questions yeah. your way, David, and if you just give us the answer, yeah. Yeah. So I'll run through full name. David Fedloff. Birthplace. Liverpool. What was your first car? My first car was a, an Escort, 1100 Ford Escort. Okay, and we know this one already. Favorite player? My favorite player, Roger Hunt. Mm-hmm. Favorite football team? Obviously. Yeah. What's been the biggest thrill of your life? Uh, biggest thrill would have been, um, aside from from playing with Liverpool, you know, the initial thing, I think the biggest thrill playing in the uh, 1978 European Cup final. Hmm. What's been the biggest disappointment? Uh, not playing in the 1977 FA Cup final. Hmm. What's the best country you visited? Gosh, uh, since I've been, I've played, I've been to more countries in, in, in since, but um, I mean, Switzerland was, Switzerland and Switzerland, Italy. Now, probably, oh God, I, I always say now it's, it's either Italy or New Zealand. Okay. What's your favourite food? Uh, my favourite food has also changed now. I've become much more uh, discerning. Uh, favourite food would be calves' liver. Okay. Okay, that's a good one. What did I say? I said. I think steak. steak it was. Me? Yeah, it was steak and something else, but I can't remember what the yeah, something else was. Um, steak and Chinese, I think. Chinese, it was. That's the one. Yeah. 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 What's your favourite TV show? Uh, I did a couple of these down the years. Probably. Uh, well, it used to be Dallas at one time. Is Dallas on that one? I no. don't. I don't think. Only so. fools and horses. That might have been. Yeah. Um, but I was a big Dallas fan. In, in in the day, I can't remember what I would have put on that one. I think I don't know. They're all new fools and horses out then, even. Oh, rising damp, rising damp. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Favorite singers? There's two singers that you like. Uh, well, my favorite singers also. Uh, Detroit Spinners were a big favorite of mine. Um, I think in those days, I think I was a little bit of an Olivia Newton-John fan. Yeah, and, and that one was mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Uh, favorite actors. Uh, actors probably at the time, maybe uh, Larry Hagman might have been there. Mm-hmm. Is it possible? I think Larry Hagman might have been. Yeah, Julia Foster. I think. Do you remember that? Does that feature in there somewhere? Um, but you, you know, you, you changed. God bless yeah. us going back. Yeah. Uh, you didn't see much TV in those days, so um, <laughs> no, that's right. You know, TV was uh, was uh, very limited. Okay. Who, who's your best friend? Uh, my best friend uh, at the time. Um, well, that that will have changed mm-hmm. down the down the way. But around those times, it was a kid called Bernie Jones was my best friend. Right. Who's? Does it say anything there? I, I don't. I don't have it in front of me, but I'll, I'll look it out later on and have a wee check. My mate was yeah. But lad lived uh, next door, but once he was my best mate. But mm-hmm. um, I had a couple of mates, obviously. In, in, in within football, yeah, uh, in the Liverpool team, Joey Jones, Sammy Lee, yeah. Okay, last question: Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Yeah, the Queen. Okay. Yeah, still great stuff. 
So we'll, we'll delve back into the, unless you have any questions, Tom, we'll delve back into the magazine. Uh, no, let's go back. In fact, before we go in, so we have a, a charity partner with the podcast, David, um, which is the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. And so I'm just going to give a little readout for what they do. So this is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. School uniform bank, a school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. Now they provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware that these vital services actually exist. And you can follow them on the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or keep an eye on their Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and Scott's footy cards for updates and news on our charity partner. So one of the things we do with the, the, the podcast is we have a web page for it as well. And on the web page, we basically put all the, the magazine clippings and photographs and everything that we talk about. So that when somebody's listening to the podcast, they can follow along and look at the articles like we're doing as well. And um, one of the things we do as well is we, we put a donate button on there that for every pound that you donate, you get a virtual raffle ticket. And when we draw that, the winner will get a goodie bag and it will contain the the original magazine that we've been going through as well as some other goodies as well. So I'll, I'll put in right. some cards and stickers from the collection. Um, so that that the money for that will go to the the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. So what we'll also do, and we'll, we'll touch on what you, what you're up to as well. But if you have any links, any web pages or charities that you you support yourself, then when we're doing the web page, we'll be in contact, get those, and make sure that we put them on the web page as well. So we'll move on to third round thriller so there's just it's uh two page black and white photos from the games in the third round of the fa cup so i'm going to i'm going to just go straight to the the important one which is emlyn hughes preventing west ham's alan taylor from getting in his shot and in close attendance is phil neal and liverpool are playing in their away kit which was white shirt and black shorts red socks is that right yeah, yeah. And I think that's Billy Jennings is the other hammer. It, it is, didn't, it yeah. Didn't say, but I think Billy Jennings, yeah. Yeah, so Liverpool won that game 2-0. And I'm going to move on to page 30. So there's a couple of photographs here. Well, there's a photograph and a focus on. The photograph is of Brian Kidd, and I absolutely mm -hmm. love this. This is it's a great full-page colour of Brian Kidd of Arsenal. It shows him running away. But he's got his head sort of turned round backwards, and it's your classic Arsenal kit, red with the white white sleeves. But for me, the most startling thing about this is his hair. I mean, that is that is probably the the greatest mo mm -hmm. mop of hair that I've ever seen. Um, it's all, all natural. <laughs> but it, it it probably you know it's probably increases his his head volume by at least a hundred percent, at least a hundred percent. Now I'm going to the Derby County in the background. I'm not too sure about that. I think it could be Tottenham even. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, and I'm, that one's up for for grabs and that. Okay, let's move on to Tartan Talk with Kenny Dalglish, and it says so. Kenny's still at Celtic at this point. He says I'm nervous on match day. 
So he talks through a typical match day for him at Celtic. He says, if the game is at Celtic Park, I normally have a lion rising around noon for a lunch of boiled eggs or a similar light lunch. He then catches up with football on the TV and gets ready for the off. He arrives at the ground just before two o'clock. First up is a massage to loosen up the joints and muscles. About five to three, they have a final team talk. He says, I like to be nervous before a game. Nerves get the adrenaline flowing and put an edge on your game. At half time, we have a quick chat on how the game is going and something to drink. I usually have tea, although some players prefer orange juice or some similar beverage. Then it's back to work again for another 45 minutes. No matter the final result, after match discussions are left to the following Monday. By then, everyone has cooled down and is less likely to say anything he will regret. For away matches, they leave by coach about 10am and have some lunch when they arrive. Pre-match preparations away are the same as at Celtic Park. He says Saturday evenings are usually a meal with his wife Marina and some friends or watching TV at home. Now just as a spoiler, Celtic failed to win a trophy this season for the first time in 12 years and Kenny was signed by Liverpool for a British record 440,000 and made his debut in August 1977. So does that that sort of pre-match uh, routine, does that ring true to how it was for yourself or was it a bit different? Yeah, pretty much. We, we, we went away. Um, Liverpool went away uh, before every game, home or away. Right. So so we went to, you'd be, um, uh, you go to the ground on a Friday night and then they take you to the, the ho- country hotel where the, the, the players were, uh, normally we, we arrived about half eight, quarter nine. Then it was tea and toast at, uh, at nine o'clock. The, the boys would, Generally, watch a bit of television in the in the tea room for you know you know people just having a cup of tea, bit of toast, watching the watching the telly till a, you know somewhere close to ten o'clock, and then most of them would just disappear and and go to bed. Next morning, don't remember any of the players used to, except Joey Jones was the only player I ever uh, knew who got out of bed and went went to to, to breakfast. Everybody else would have a bit of tea and toast, cornflakes in their in their room, you know. Mm. Lunchtime was, uh, lunch was twelve o'clock, and then at, at one o'clock it was on the on the coach back to Anfield or wherever wherever we were. It was pretty, um, you know, it, it didn't it didn't change for all that time that I was I was there. Same hotels, same routines, same foods. Nothing changed. They were, they were so stuck in their ways. So Kenny would have adapted to that. Yeah. No boiled eggs. I don't remember him eating boiled eggs, but he. Uh, I think Kenny was a, a fish man. I think. I think yeah. I mean, when I came into the, when I broke into the team, the first, the first when I broke in, seventy-five. Every player had a fillet steak for 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 lunch. Just fillet piece of fillet steak. That's all you had. About a, about eighteen months, two years later, um, probably when the likes of Kenny arrived and one or two others, they began to there, there were options. So it was either became fish or steak. Yeah. So I think I can I think Kenny probably sparked that off actually. I think he would have been the, uh, the instigator of that. Maybe this explains the the focus on answer for food then is because that's all footballers got fed was steak and fish. Yeah. So maybe that yeah, that, that could right. explain it. So I was just going to see what was it like playing alongside Kenny. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I played in his debut match. His debut match was the Charity Shield seventy-seven at uh, Wembley. Um, it's difficult sometimes to you you don't you don't kind of think that just because he's in the team you 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 know you're gonna win or you give him the ball or anything like that. He was just one of you know, it was just one of eleven. Yeah. You know, equally you know, you had people like 
you know, huge characters, people like Tommy Smith, Emily Hughes, um, and and then and then obviously Kenny would create magic. There's no 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 doubt about that. He he did some fantastic things, but uh, yeah, only only good. You know, only only good memories. Never fell out with Kenny at all. Never had any. Never had any uh, reason to um, to fall out with him. It was never, I can't ever remember having any, any cross words with Kenny at all. No, like you say, David, that that whole era for Liverpool, there wasn't a weak link in the team. Everybody was a, was a terrific player. It wasn't as if he just had two guys driving the team all throughout no. the, all throughout the team. No, there was no reliance on there was no reliance on on anyone any one person to be dog mooching around. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, even the, the European Cup final '78, he didn't have the best of games. In yeah. fact, it was probably the only the only real thing that he did of note was was scoring a goal on the night. <laughs> so he wasn't he wasn't one who, you know, not taking any credit from him. He wasn't the one who kind of made us. He, he was a massive part of it, but he wasn't the only reason why we, you know, why we did things. It, it was it was very much a team ethic. You know, it was yeah. a huge um, huge part of what Liverpool did was. You know that that that, and I think Kenny. When you when you listen to Kenny talk, I mean, he talks about you know how important it was to be be a team, you know, big unit. Okay, so we're at the result scorers and team lineups pages, which, as I've said, I I, I love these things with the scores, attendances, mm-hmm. the goal scorers, the the teams, things like that. So I'm going to pick out a few. The first one, uh, Saturday, the December the thirteenth, English Division One. And it's Everton five, Birmingham two, so a high high scoring game there. Next one is Spurs nil, Liverpool four. Goals from Keegan, Case, Neil, Highway, and there's yourself coming on there for Peter Cormack in that game. The Scottish Premier League, Aberdeen beat Celtic two 0 I think that that was probably one of the highlights of the season. Aberdeen who didn't do particularly well. Yeah, that's a um, Dundee United nil, Hearts one. Few other scores: Rangers three, Air United nil. The other one I'm going to look at is from Saturday, December the twentieth, and again Liverpool. This reading about the season, I'm guessing this was probably one of the the big results of the season. Liverpool two, QPR nil. Uh, goals from Toshak and Neil. So I mean, obviously QPR were the ones who were right up there until the very death. Um, so yeah. this, you know, as as important as the the Wolves game was at the end. I guess this was maybe just as important. Would that have been right? Yeah, I mean, because they'd, they'd beaten Liverpool the first game of the season, 2-0. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we went really uh, December. You know, we, I don't think there was a feeling that, you know, Liverpool were up for the, for the league because uh, it was a, le- a real late run. I didn't feature in the team till... Uh, I mean, I had a couple of little appearances. Um, made me debut in in uh, November. Made a couple of little appearances, but then didn't get get into the into the uh, the the for a run until sort of February March time, end of maybe maybe March. Mm. It's only then that we went on this incredible run, and we never lost from um, we never lost for God knows how many games, probably. Uh, and that's what that's what did it really got us into it because I think there's a stage in the season I've seen it before when we were about we were like fourth maybe fourth or fifth off the pace and then we got into this it got into this run and just sort of swept up the uh, up swept up on the uh, on the sidelines really. Mm-hmm. And just looking at that QPR team there, uh, Stan Great Gold, team. Frank McClintock, yeah. Don Marson. Yeah, 
I mean, I can't see that team because it's it's hidden by your images. But uh, so it's Parks, Clement, Gillard, Hollins, McClintock, Webb, Thomas, Francis, Masson, Bowles, and Given. Yeah, Don Givens. Yeah, Don became a big mate of mine um, through um, playing in Switzerland. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're all you know big, big, solid names, aren't they? And they, yeah. they, they fully expected to win the league. Mm. I mean, they were upset because we, we'd, we'd. Um, uh, we had the UEFA Cup final that, that they had to fill in and they decided to play the UEFA Cup final before the last league game. Well, they were up in arms. You know, they, they, they were finished, done and dusted. And you had this one game hanging on for like two weeks, 10 days after, after they'd, they'd all uh, finished up. So, um, yeah, they, they, they weren't happy about that, uh, you know, the rearrangement of the, of the, of the Wolves game. Mm-hmm. We've come to the end of part one of our David Fairclough podcast. Join us next time where we'll chat more to David on items in the magazine and his time at Liverpool.